Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, August the 27th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners uh, for their listenership. Uh, and uh, we're going to move right now uh, into our rundown uh, for today's program. Uh, this episode features a Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on a large rally held in Niamey, Niger, uh, which coincided with the demands uh, by the CNSP government for the immediate withdrawal of the ambassador from France. Sudanese military leader General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has met with South Sudan President Salva Kiir to discuss uh, security issues. There have been renewed talks between Sudan, Ethiopia, and Egypt over the Grand Renaissance Dam project. And in Mozambique, there has been uh, the reported deaths of several leading rebel insurgents. In the second hour, we analyzed the recently held BRICS summit in South Africa. Finally, we conclude our month-long commemoration of Black August with an examination of the violent conclusion of Reconstruction in the United States and the eruption of urban rebellions during uh, the 1960s. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the band Bozi Boziana, featuring Jolie Detta on lead vocals. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. That was the music uh, of Bozi, uh, Boziana and the Anti-Shock Band. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Our lead story uh, deals with the current political and security situation in the West African state of Niger. Thousands of people demonstrated earlier today in Niger in support of last month's change of government, a few hours before the deadline given to France's ambassador in an ultimatum to leave the West African state. Protesters supporting the military leaders uh, behind uh, the change of government last uh, week month gathered outside the French embassy uh, and uh, also the air base uh, in Niger. Demonstrators gathered near the French uh, military base in the capital of Niamey, some waving Nigerian and Russian flags, <clears throat> others with placards calling for the departure of French troops. Uh, former colonial power France still has uh, 1,500 1, soldiers based in Niger. They had been helping the deposed uh, President Mohamed Bazoum in the fight against jihadist forces active there before military officers toppled him in a coup on July the 26th. National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, led by General Abdurrahmani Chiani, has detained him at his uh, presidential palace. Sunday's rally started at dawn on a roundabout near Niame uh, Airport by the Nigerian air, air base, where the uh, French force is located. As demonstrators answered an appeal from organizations back in the country's new rulers. Quote, we don't want the French army in Niger, uh, said uh, one demonstrator, Abu Hunchi. Quote, let the French leave, end quote. It goes on to say that, quote, the French say that Niger is a poor country, but when we tell them to go home, they refuse, said restaurateur Adama Asani. On Friday, uh, Niger's foreign ministry announced that French ambassador Sylvian Ette had 48 hours to leave the country, saying he had refused to meet with the new rulers and citing French government actions that were, quote, contrary to the interests of Niger, unquote. Paris has rejected the demand and said the pushists do not have the authority to make this request, unquote, insisting that the government of Bazoum, that they had overthrown, remained the legitimate authority. Yesterday, some 20,000 people rallied in Signe Conche Stadium to support the country's new military rulers and call for the removal of French soldiers. In other news uh, related to the security situation in the Republic of Sudan, General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan engaged in a conversation with South Sudan President Salva Kiir yesterday, subsequent uh, to his departure from Khartoum uh, through a military operation executed by his troops on August 24th, uh, 2023, uh, Tut uh, Galyat, South Sudan's president advisor on security affairs, told Sudan Tribune that Kira and Al-Bahan had a telephone call where Kira reiterated his commitment to supporting initiatives aimed at terminating the ongoing conflict. Galuak stated, quote, communication underscores General Salva Kira's commitment to finding a lasting solution to the Sudan situation. The path forward lies uh, in peace, uh, dialogue, rather than destructive warfare, unquote. However, he refrained from disclosing specific details of the telephone conversation. 
You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Egypt, Ethiopia, and the Republic of Sudan resumed their years-long negotiations earlier today over the dam, the Grand Renaissance Dam, uh, on the Nile River's main tributary. The resumption of talks came after President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed said last month that they aimed to reach within four months an agreement on the operation of the 4.6 billion grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile meets the White Nile in Sudan's capital of Khartoum before winding northward uh, through Egypt to the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt fears a devastating impact if the dam is operated without taking its needs into account. It called it an existential threat. The Arab world's most populous country relies almost entirely on the Nile to supply water for agriculture and its more than 100 million people. About 85% of the river's flows originates from Ethiopia. The Egyptian Irrigation Ministry announced the new round of talks in Cairo. Irrigation Minister Hani Suwalam said Egypt wants a legally binding agreement on how the dam is operated and filled. And finally, uh, as it relates uh, to the situation, security situation in the southern African state of Mozambique, uh, Mozambique security forces have declared the death of two of the country's most sought-after insurgents in the northern province of Cabo Delgado. According to the authorities, the feared al-Shabaab terror group that had operated in the area since 2017, but has no relations to the Somalian uh, group of the same name, had uh, some of their feathers clipped. Uh, Maputo on Friday said he had killed Bonomari Machude Omar, associated with a local cell of the Islamic State in the forest of Cabo Delgado. Had earlier announced killing Abu Qatal, a member of the insurgency who acted as the deputy leader of al-Shabaab, also known as al-Sunnah Wajamat. The development came following the deployment of a joint force to ambush the insurgents in an operation the security agency says was successful. The joint force is made up of personnel from the Armed Forces of Defense of Mozambique, the Southern African Development Community, and that of the Rwandan Defense Forces. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to inform our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, the agency has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, Go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
in uh, Johannesburg, Republic of South Africa, where BRICS added six uh, new member states. Let's listen to uh, this report. I am glad to see the growing enthusiasm of developing countries about BRICS cooperation, and quite a number of them have applied to join the BRICS cooperation mechanism. We need to act on the BRICS spirit of openness, inclusiveness, and win-win cooperation to bring more countries into the BRICS family so as to pool our wisdom and strength to make global governance more just and equitable. Chinese President Xi Jinping there during the 15th BRICS summit where six new members were admitted to the bloc. They are Egypt, Ethiopia, Argentina, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The six countries will officially become members of the BRICS on the 1st of January 2024, expanding the group to 11 members. This week on the program, we examine the significance of the 15th BRICS summit and delve into the economic and geopolitical significance of its expansion. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, joining me now to unpack some of the key agenda issues at BRICS 2023 are Ambassador Professor Anil Suklal, Ambassador at Large Asia and BRICS at the South Africa Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Tembisa Fakude, Senior Research Fellow, Africa Asia Dialogues, and Gustavo De Cavallo, Political Analyst and Public Policy Researcher. Gentlemen, Welcome uh, to the program. Let me start off with getting your perception of what went, uh, what happened at the BRICS summit. Ambassador uh, Suklat, starting off with you, what are your key takeaways from the summit, particularly under the key themes, the discussions at the Johannesburg Declaration too? Well, there's uh, a number of issues that we could say we have achieved uh, over the past few days, just looking at the summit. But of course, uh, it's more than the summit because BRICS is a full-year program. And the summit is just one dimension, of course, the most important facet of it. Uh, so you can't just isolate the takeaways of the summit. You have to look at the totality of South Africa's chairship. But specifically looking at the summit, as you know, on Tuesday we had the BRICS Business Council. And uh, one of the major focus for us was to look at how we deepen interaction between our business communities, not just BRICS, but also BRICS and the African continent and the invited countries from the Global South. As you saw that the BRICS Business Forum was very well attended with a large number of countries apart from the BRICS countries, the private sector being present, and that provided a platform. And this is the first uh, platform where in-person uh, BRICS Summit was held. And I think there were a number of key deliverables. There were a lot of networking. But before that, the Women's Business Alliance uh, met in Devon over two days on the 20th and 21st of August. I was speaking to our chairperson of that alliance meeting and there also they had about a thousand delegates from Africa, BRICS and Global South countries and she told me that business to the value of 48 billion rands was transacted just at the summit itself. And I'm sure likewise the business council you would have seen major transactions 
and deal signed there. So we right. provided that platform of further deepening economic interaction between ourselves and the Global South countries. That's on the business front. So uh, I'm going to come back to you on the political front, but let me also get uh, to Mrs. View here. Well, I think it's been a, a good function for South Africa. Once again, we're in the limelight. We have uh, guests coming from different parts of the world. We've got the media that is once again amplified what South Africa is and what South Africa can offer. Um, and we have managed to showcase our offerings. Um, Minister Ibrahim Patel gave a very nice introduction in terms of what South Africa is all about and where we come from. And I think that to an extent will add to uh, further interactions between South Africa and all the countries that we're here, including the media. Um, so South Africa is ready for business and that was well communicated. Uh, I think that in itself uh, was very, very positive. The fact that we had uh, our President Cyril Maposa bring in uh, and into the spotlight members of the, um, of the private sector and some members from the civil society. We saw the young uh, person who spoke from the uh, National Youth Development right. uh, Congress, the CEO of the Standard Bank, uh, Sim Shabalala, also spoke. That was also very good because it exposes and presents South Africa as a country uh, fit for papers and ready for business. Gustavo, let me get your thoughts here about the uh, key themes, the deliverables, and your takeaways from the summit. Thank you. And, and I think certainly the discussion around the expansion took a lot of attention of the public opinion of different countries. I think the decision to ensure and to invite six new countries to join the bloc is a very interesting case for the increasing uh, institutionalization of BRICS, the increasing collaborations amongst its members, and particularly when we're starting very important discussions around the role of currencies and the role of uh, local currencies in particular when it comes to trade amongst BRICS members. We have new countries coming that have pr will provide a lot of liquidity in terms of the interaction between countries. So in that sense, I think this provided a really important step for a larger BRICS and hopefully a more impactful BRICS in international relations. Well, let's look at that uh, issue, Gustavo, because the new structure of the expanded BRICS, bringing in uh, Argentina, UAE, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Ethiopia, these countries, what is the implications here for geopolitics? I think, uh, and I wanted to start particularly with the two African countries that were invited, and I think it provides a very important opportunity in a space where African countries are looking to expand their voice in international affairs. Uh, I think it combines and complements very nicely with a number of other developments happening within the continent, particularly the implementation of the African continental free trade area, but also in terms of the uh, potential joining of uh, the Africa Union to the G20. We've also seen countries like Argentina, a country that works very closely with Brazil, and I think for, it would be very hard for Brazil to accept any expansion without the presence of the southern partner. And then we have our three uh, new countries from the Middle East. We have uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran, and in particularly important countries, important middle powers, very relevant in their own region and will be very important, especially when we start the conversations when the leaders of the ministers of economy and finance and the governors of central banks start talking about trading with local currencies. Noting that a lot of countries are already discussing those issues. We've seen this week India present, uh, already showcasing that we'll be buying one million barrels from the UAE in rupees. And I think it's an important first step and a good test for BRICS in terms of identifying 
how the group is going to be able to engage further in strengthening discussions around currencies, reserves and payment systems. Professor Suklal, you brought in an interesting uh, dimension of what the business uh, community from the BRICS countries uh, achieved during the BRICS summit. The inclusion of Africa, particularly Ethiopia um, and, and Egypt, what do these countries bring to the table? Well, look, I think also uh, the fact of the matter that you now have a country from North Africa, East Africa and Southern Africa uh, within the BRICS family, I think this is good for the African continent. We've set for ourselves a major focus during our chairship, uh, a partnership between BRICS and Africa and especially focusing on the African Continental Free Trade uh, Agreement and the opportunities that it brings for Africa and also for our partners. And I think all of the current BRICS partners have major interaction with, with Africa, so do the new partners that we are bringing on board. So I think it will deepen the interaction between our BRICS partners and the African continent. And I think this is good news for Africa as well as good news for the BRICS. President Xi talked about this uh, being a new era uh, for the global South. Explain that for us. With the three African countries, or two at least now from Sub-Saharan Africa, we are likely to see them benefiting and um, influencing the decision-making within the, um, the BRICS uh, plus uh, countries. But again, what's more interesting for me was three Gulf countries, um, you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, particularly given that Iran and Saudi Arabia has had, uh, over the past couple of days at least, and months, uh, rapprochement towards improving the relationship. And this, to me, signals uh, the fact that, you know, both countries mean business. Uh, we're going to see more and more cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And with the UAE coming in, it will add again another financial muscle to the BRICS Plus. So it's, it's good news overall. Um, and with Ethiopia, I think I'm excited to see that the seat of African Union, which is Ethiopia, now also sits within BRICS, which means therefore that the large number of African countries are likely to support and hope also to be included within the BRICS Plus uh, country. For, you know, Argentina and Brazil, two of the biggest, uh, you know, countries in uh, South America, does this change the economic and political landscape now in South America? Despite their historical rivalry, countries that are very tied to one another in the foreign policy tends to be very much in parallel. And so I think for, for Brazil, they seem to see that as a success in terms of their own understanding and their own uh, idea in terms of what South American integration within the rest of the Global South should be. I think it will be important, I think, also to identify within the context of BRICS the dynamics within the, the members in the coming years, noting that we have historical challenges between Saudi Arabia and Iran, we have existing challenges between Egypt and Ethiopia, but we shouldn't forget that next year is the 30th anniversary of the bombing of the Jewish Association in Buenos Aires, which have created some kind of a frozen relations between Argentina and Iran for quite some time, and there is an opportunity within BRICS to build confidence amongst its members and to also showcase that it can also provide that space for dialogue and confidence building as part of the block itself.
All right. I, I want to come to another uh, President Shiri remark there, where he said that the bloc was gathering, uh, Professor Sukla, at a time when the world is entering a new era of regrouping. He did call on the BRICS uh, countries to play an important role. Put that in context for us, especially against the call for the BRICS countries to advance the interests of this global south. What does it mean for the global south? Well, I think BRICS since its inception have been championing uh, the, the core interests of the global south. It was not just about the five countries. It was about how do we create a more inclusive, equitable world. If you look at the very first BRICS summit uh, that took place in Russia and you look at the outcome document, already in 2009, BRICS was calling for the creation of a multipolar, more inclusive world. That has been the constant about BRICS. And I think now with the new members and the confidence that the Global South has in BRICS. It was not just about the new members that we admitted, but also the large number of countries that asked to become part of the BRICS family, and an equally large number of countries that informally said we are keen in joining. I think it shows that the Global South has risen. They are wanting to claim the rightful uh, space within the global architecture, the emerging, evolving architecture the geopolitical, the financial, and the economic uh, dimensions of it. And I think with BRICS as a champion of the issues of the Global South cannot be ignored. It's not only a voice, but it's a presence now, and a massive presence on the global stage that cannot be ignored. Gustavo, is a new world order emerging now? I think often we talk about BRICS changing the global order. I like to say that to a certain effect, the global order has changed. We're just building a lot of the institutions that will support to this new role that emerging economies bring. I think there is a very good potential, and often we talk about this divide between the global south and the global north, but I think institutions like BRICS could potentially become very important vehicles for the global south to enhance the dialogue with the global north, including with G7 countries. I think there is a lot of opportunities in terms of ensuring increased complementarity between BRICS members, but also when it comes to other countries within the Global South. I think it was particularly important that South Africa presented its positions focusing particularly on Africa. And I think with the potential and the number of the institutions, the number of processes that we have been creating in, the, in, in recent times is a very important process for a continent with 1.3 billion people. And certainly we would like to see also how other countries are able to become involved if, in, in the group, even if they're not members. I think that all of the BRICS members have their experience of being uh, left out in some of international institutions, and I think that creates a lot of expectations for other countries in the Global South to create a new grouping, an uh, expanded grouping that has a new core of 11 members, but it's also very inclusive and bringing voices from different parts of the developing world. All right. Uh, Tembisa, I want to get your very quick uh, comment on this. Are we seeing the emergence of a new world order here? I think we are seeing the emergence of the new order. But, uh, you know, what many have started arguing of a swing African states where we cannot be friends with everyone uh, because Africa deserves to be friends with everyone. We're desperate uh, in need of economic investment. We are desperate in terms of our own human resource development. And uh, all of these blocks that have been... Uh, competing over the past couple of decades can come quite um, helpful uh, to Africa in terms of ensuring that our human very young human resource uh, is fit for purpose and uh, ready for the future. Indeed, very interesting discussion there, but we are going to take a short break and when we come back we'll continue our discussion on the 15th BRICS Summit to stay with us.
and payment systems are increasingly being used as instruments of geopolitical contestation. Global economic recovery relies on predictable global payment systems and the smooth operating of banking, supply chains, trade, tourism, as well as financial flows. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me on the program, Ambassador Professor Anil Suklal, Tembisa Fakude, and Gustavo de Gavallo. Before the break, we looked at how BRICS expansion may impact geopolitics. Let's now unpack some of the proposed reforms uh, to the global financial systems. Professor Suklal, one of the issues uh, that came out quite clearly was the need to transition uh, you know, into trading uh, with uh, local currencies because many have felt that the global financial systems have not been fair to the global south. What is the political and economic significance of this? Well, I think firstly we must uh, understand we're already in a multipolar trading environment, but we're not in a multipolar financial environment. Today, global trade is quite diversely dispersed amongst countries of the global north and south. It's not dominated by the global north anymore. Global south countries are major producers today in terms of trade, and yet the, at least over 50% of global trade is still invoiced in the U.S. dollar. There's a disjuncture there, and that is why countries from the global south are saying that we want to trade in our own currencies. And this is something that we've already started within BRICS several years ago when we signed the interbank uh, agreement mechanism looking at deepening trade in uh, conducting transactions between ourselves in local currency. So BRICS has been again a catalyst bringing attention to us diversifying uh, our interaction on the financial front uh, in a more diverse way and giving us greater choices greater independence and looking at deepening interaction using local currencies. And this is not just confined to the BRICS now. BRICS has been the catalyst. Africa, the African Union has stated that uh, in order to facilitate the trade amongst ourselves as a result of the free trade agreement, we should trade in local currencies. And that's why the AfriExim Bank has set up uh, the Pan-African Payment and Settlement System. And to date, uh, about 10 central banks, over 20 commercial banks have become part of this uh, structure. And it, uh, it is estimated that this will save Africa at least $5 billion annually in trade uh, between African countries. And you are seeing in India, for example, has signed uh, deals with over 20 countries to trade in local currencies. They have created their own payment settlement system. So has Russia and so has China. So this is a movement that has become global as far as the global south countries are concerned. And as you saw also at the summit, 
the leaders have tasked our finance ministers to look into this issue and to report at the next summit in terms of looking at a BRICS financial system, payment settlement system, and hopefully at the summit next year they will give guidance on how we take this forward. So we have started a process. Right. Gustavo, you know, there is a lot of discussion there around uh, the collective rights of emerging markets and we did hear a lot from the leaders talking about how the BRICS nations had already outstripped the G7. With this expanded um, economic bloc now, what is the global outlook going to look like going forward? I think what a lot of countries are looking to do is to diversify and minimize the risks that they have of being part of a, of a global order that is not only unjust for some of the members, but it's also very risky for them. The expansion of BRICS at this stage, I think it provides a new momentum for BRICS, a new momentum in terms of much more capacity of implementing some of the decisions that have been made. I think it is important for us in this changing global order to ensure that BRICS itself does not expand the divide within uh, international politics. I think there is an important opportunity for dialogue between BRICS members and the G7. Both remain as very important groups in terms of decision making and BRICS uh, will be rising very fast in terms of its own influence, but I think it's very important that we ensure that there is diversification that reduces the risks and increases the potential of sustainable development within the global south, but also noting that we cannot avoid dealing with the West, and I think some of those discussions should be occurring in, in the future, and I think it would be very positive to make sure that we have stability internationally, that we have more harmony between different groups and much less of this competitive nature and fears and often this fear mongering that seems to be rising very often. Tembisa, President Ramaphosa talked about uh, the important opportunity uh, that lies for African countries, particularly with the implementation of the TFTA. If you look at the combined GDP of the African members of BRICS now, it will be almost $1 trillion. South Africa over 400, Egypt over 400, Ethiopia over 100. Does this give Africa now more leverage uh, for global partnerships, both within BRICS and in other blocs? Very impressive development. But important, I think, that Africans need to start um, beneficiating uh, some of the minerals that they are producing. At the moment, uh, notwithstanding the, the amount of business that we do amongst ourselves, which is going to be positive, but by and large we still import ready-made products from elsewhere. Um, so we export our raw material and import ready-made products. So for us to benefit from uh, this new uh, expanded BRICS, we need to look at uh, further producing our own products so that we can trade amongst ourselves and uh, create opportunities, particular employment opportunities for people that will uh, prevent them from crossing the Mediterranean seeking better opportunities. So over and above the economics and business that has been presented by this, I'm hoping that there's going to be also a strong social political intervention, particularly by leaders of Africa, led by Ethiopia, uh, South Africa and uh, Egypt, to ensure that you know, uh, we encourage our people to start thinking the actual making of money and the actual making of products so that they can trade amongst themselves. And I want to come back with what you alluded to at the beginning, Professor Tuklar, because you talked about how the private sector had come into play, but you also talked about the implications of the political alignment, uh, the political implications that you saw here. Were there other agreements among the BRICS countries, among the BRICS and other countries uh, that came into play during the summit? Well, look, I mean... It was important to, to recognize that all of the BRICS countries, we have 
a certain level of agreement between ourselves in terms of all of the key areas that we operate on. In terms of formal agreement, we are finalizing a customer agreement between ourselves. We have several other agreements that are under consideration. Over the years, we have been signing agreements, but we do so when there's maturity and consensus on all of these things. But I just want to also comment on the issue that Gustavo pointed out. With the new <coughs> members added, currently all five BRICS members are G20 members. With the two members that are G20 members that are being added, Saudi Arabia and Argentina, you have seven of the BRICS countries that are G20 members. G7 are all G20 members. So 14 of the G20 countries, well 19 are country, EU is the 20th. 14 are G20 members between BRICS and the G7. And we talk to each other there, we cooperate with each other within the G G20. So there's already a platform where we are cooperating. So I am confident that both the G7 and the BRICS at some stage will dialogue with each other. Because as I've said, they are dialoguing with each other within the G20. And that's why we have a coherent and, and a well-functioning G20. So I don't think uh, the expansion of BRICS should necessarily mean uh, increasing the divide between the North and South because BRICS is open to dialogue with all uh, parts of the world, including the Global North. We want to be inclusive in all that we do. And I think interacting with each other is something that should happen for the betterment of the world community. And I want to get your winding up comments uh, here, gentlemen. But before we wind up, I want to find out, as we reflect on uh, BRICS 2023, first of all, what next uh, for the BRICS? And what are the key indicators, Gustavo, let me come to you there. What are the key indicators that could influence the trajectory of the BRICS moving forward? I think it's going to be a very busy year for ministers of finance within all of the BRICS members. Uh, the discussion regarding the local currencies is a very important one. I think as Ambassador Suklau mentioned, there's already a lot of development in place, particularly at the bilateral level. It will be very interesting to see how this web of relations will contribute within the context of BRICS and particularly how we would that move forward. I think certain aspects within BRICS that I find always very interesting and despite the fact that we often talk about the summit, it is also how this is going to impact some of the other the discussions that occurred throughout the years during whichever presidency of BRICS that is happening. We saw the BRICS uh, uh, business forum this week, there was the youth forum and, and some of the recommendations in terms of creating the youth council. We have discussions at an academic level, civil society, scientists and so on. And I think we're going to have a much more diverse range of actors in there, a much more diverse exchange of ideas, of experiences, of expertise. And that in itself, we shouldn't underestimate how important they are. We often talk, and China often talk about the idea of people-to-people -people relations. And I think this is something that in this expanded phase of BRICS can provide a lot of benefits for those societies, especially when we see the diversity of countries in a group that has a very interesting aspect for me, that is a group that has a focus in terms of what it would like to do, but it's a group that also seems to agree to disagree. And I think this brings a very important momentum for open discussions, open dialogues, and ensuring that this uh, uh, expanded BRICS provides a space not only for economic development but also for closer interaction between societies and we, I think we already have a good foundation from what we've seen in the last 15 years. Right, and Bita, your thoughts? What's next for the BRICS? 
Well, I think what's next for the BRICS is coherence um, and also encouraging the interaction that's needed to advance economic activities in Africa. Uh, there's already been indications that that's going to be happening. So with uh, President, uh, I mean Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed, uh, President Cyril Maposa and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, we are likely to see a coordination that will push uh, Africa forward and uh, we're all looking forward to it. Uh, Professor Suklal, what could influence the bloc's trajectory moving forward? Well, I think uh, we firstly must coordinate our internal cooperation, uh, the mutual benefit that it brings to all BRICS members. I think that's on the internal front. On the external front, continue championing the changes we want on the global uh, geopolitical, financial, economic architecture. I think uh, ensuring that the voice of the global south and our interests are taken on board we want to see a more inclusive world and I think as the declaration rightfully captures, we have been saying we want a reform multilateral uh, global architecture. We still subscribe to the UN as being at the center, the, subscribing to the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, underpinned by international law. All of these are important, but of course comprehensively addressing reform so that the new reality, the reality of the world of 2023 is reflected in our global institutions and not the archaic reality of 1945. All right, gentlemen, a very interesting discussion indeed. But that's all we have on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, Ambassador Professor Anil Suklal, Ambassador at Large Asia and the BRICS at the South African Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Tembisa Fakude, Senior Research Fellow, Africa, Asia Dialogues, and Gustavo de Gavallo political analyst and public policy researcher. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. Do also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. Uh, do keep the conversation going and join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, BXS Marshall and the team here in Johannesburg. Until next time, bye-bye. That was a discussion on the expanding uh, BRICS Plus at their 15th uh, summit held in Johannesburg, Republic of South Africa. If you want to uh, stay abreast of some of the developments that are happening within BRICS, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We will take a break and be back uh, with our Black August segment uh, for today.
of that infamous uh, rhythm and blues song from the 1960s, Are You Lonely uh, For Me, Baby? You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 27th, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, Right now, we want to move into our concluding Black August segment, Black August representing the historic struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism. In this episode, uh, we begin uh, with an analysis by Professor David Blight of Yale University on uh, the failure of Reconstruction after the United States Civil War. And of course, uh, Black August uh, was started uh, by African-American political prisoners during the late 1970s. By a great journalist, Nick Lemon. It's called Redemption. The last battle of the Civil War. There seems to be a contest right now in writing about and publishing about the violence of Reconstruction. It's really been discovered by American publishers and certainly by American writers. There are no less than three new books out on either the Colfax Massacre, which we'll talk about in a minute, or what Lemon does mostly in his book, which is the story of Mississippi, sometimes called the shotgun policy, sometimes called the Mississippi plan, but in effect the coup d'etat, whereby the white Democrats of Mississippi took back control of that state, largely by terrorist violence, political violence, in 1875. The titles of these books strike me. Redemption. The Last Battle of the Civil War. Charles Lane's book, 
a, popu a good journalistic popular writer, a whole book on the Colfax Massacre entitled The Day Freedom Died, One Day. And there's another book by a young New York private high school teacher, proof that good books can be written by anyone. The Colfax Massacre, the untold story of black power, white terror, and the death of Reconstruction. Now, all those titles are true. It's not the redemption, of course, that you hear about in Bob Marley's redemption song. But I might recommend that you put Marley on while you're reading about this stuff. It might be a nice antidote. No, I'm not going to sing it. But I'm going to start with a very brief little poem. One of the best illustrations in poetry I know of, of this idea that revolutions can go backward, that revolutions usually do go backward for a while, that revolutions always cause counter-revolutions. It's a poem by Langston Hughes. He wrote it right near the end of his life in 1965, note the date. He entitled it, Emancipation, and then a subtitle, Long View Negro. Two simple verses. Emancipation, 1865, sighted through the telescope of dreams, looms larger, so much larger, so it seems, than truth can be. But turn the telescope around, look through the larger end, and wonder why what was so large becomes so small again. The metaphor is powerful if vexing. Look through the opposite end of a telescope. Look back at history and not forward. And wonder what was, what was such a dream, what was so large can become so small again. Now, in, um, when that 15th Amendment passed that I talked about briefly the other day, there were just amazing celebrations in 18, when it was finally ratified in 1870 all over the place. Um, I'll only cite a couple. Um, Grant, in his message to Congress, in effect, said Reconstruction was now largely over. Frederick Douglass, though he wasn't thrilled with the fact that it was the most conservative version of the 15th Amendment and so on, nevertheless said, we can now breathe a new atmosphere. We have a new earth beneath and a new sky above. That's a dream. One Republican newspaper called it the nation's second birth, second founding. And Wendell Phillips, the, again the Massachusetts abolitionist, said it was now the real birthday of the nation because now the Declaration of Independence applied to all. Now, that was placing a great deal of hope in a somewhat limited amendment, to say the least. 
1870. Now go ahead just five years with me. This is the period now of Southern Redemption, defined, of course, as the Southern White Democratic Party's counter-revolution and taking back control of its state governments. Happens very quickly in some Southern states. Some are redeemed as early as 1870 by the Democrats, and the last three or so, not until 1876-77. But think of what you just heard there, that, that almost unfathomable hope rooted in this Voting Rights Amendment. And then listen to this statement from the floor of Congress by one of the most brilliant young black politicians who got himself elected among those hundreds who got elected, among the 16 who got elected to Congress. John Roy Lynch, a former slave, self-taught. He educated himself like Frederick Douglass, there's, there's, there's mysteries about the brilliance of this guy. But he's elected to Congress when he's 26 from Mississippi, under Mississippi's radical reconstruction government so long as it lasted. He's still there in 1875. And on the floor of the Congress, which was then, as you'll see in a moment after the 74 election, now ruled by a majority of Democrats, he looks them in the eye and he says, Think of it for a moment, my colleagues. When I leave my home in Mississippi to come to the capital of the nation to take part in the deliberations of this house and to participate with you in making laws for the government of this great republic, I am treated not as an American citizen, but as a brute forced to occupy a filthy smoking car both night and day with drunkards, gamblers, and criminals. And for what? Not that I am unable or unwilling to pay my way. Not that I am obnoxious in my personal appearance or disrespectful in my conduct, but simply because I happen to be of a darker complexion. Now here's the irony and the point. The majority of those men he was speaking to that day in the Congress, in their minds, when they heard him, to the extent they listened when he said that, I think we can safely assume we're thinking, yeah, that's just exactly the way you should be treated. Now, to 1873 for the moment. Uh, the day freedom died, uh, according to Charles Lane's book, is the day of the Colfax Massacre. That day, I, I wouldn't quite say freedom died on one day. That's a little ahistorical, but so be it. That's probably a publisher's title more than an author's title. But April 14, 1873, is in some ways one of those days we could call in American history a day of infamy. The Supreme Court that day, at least it's the date of the decision, even though it was Easter Sunday, handed down its decision five to four in the slaughterhouse cases, so-called, a collection of five cases that came out of Louisiana, which was the court's first major ruling on the Civil War amendments, on the meaning of the 13th, the 14th, and in effect the 15th Amendments. That day, same day, Easter Sunday, in Colfax, Louisiana, a town, not very big, named for Schuler Colfax, 
the Vice President of the United States in the Grant Administration, in Grant Parish, renamed by the Republican regime for Ulysses Grant, the largest mass murder of Americans ever in American history occurred in the political violence stemming from the divided election in Louisiana back in the fall of 1872. Now, 9-11, of course, killed more Americans. We, we can get caught up in categories of what is domestic violence and foreign violence and so forth. But this is the largest mass murder of Americans in our history so far as we can tell. That divided election produced, in effect, two competing governments in Louisiana. The Republican regime, which did win the election for all practical purposes, in spite of the tremendous political violence committed against particularly black voters in that fall 72 election. But a so-called fusion ticket of basically a kind of white supremacist coalition also claimed to be the legitimate government of Louisiana. And in this situation of essentially an ongoing vigilante war throughout many of the parishes, counties of Louisiana, a standoff took place in Colfax. I'll come back to that in a moment. But back to the slaughterhouse case that came down that day. It was, in the end, a testing of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. In 1869, the city of New Orleans, under its Republican state government, created a corporation to move the slaughterhouse of New Orleans. There actually had never been a legitimate slaughterhouse in New Orleans. What the butchers of New Orleans would do, the white butchers of New Orleans would do, is they herd the hogs through the streets of New Orleans and basically they'd butcher the things wherever they wanted to and they always threw all the, this gets ugly, all of the offal from the hogs into the Mississippi River, up river from the city before the river reached the main water pipeline into the city. This had long been a problem, long been a, a series of complaints and so this was an attempt that clean government and clean cities. The city and the state backing it up created a corporation. They created a new slaughterhouse. They moved it across the Mississippi River and downstream from the city for health reasons. They put in a, a state-appointed inspector and the white butchers of New Orleans were angry. Some butchers and some critics charged this was a monopoly and an unfair practice. Twenty-five butchers brought suit with support from the reviving Democratic Party. White butchers. The lower courts in this particular suit found in favor of the new corporation. It was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. It got on the docket in 72. It was decided April 14, 1873. It was a five-to-four decision. Seemingly on the surface, when you read it, it's, a, it's like many court decisions, it's a bit boring at first. Five cases from butchers and so on and so on. You wonder, what the hell is this about? And then you keep reading and you realize it became a fundamental decision. Justice Samuel Miller, for the majority, argued that the 13th and 14th Amendments were intended, this was the good part of the decision, 
to end slavery and advance the rights of the freedmen. But he made a sharp distinction, in other words, not to protect a bunch of white butchers in New Orleans. And by the way, the lead lawyer for the butchers in the slaughterhouse cases was none other than a man named John A. Campbell, a Georgia-born former member of the Supreme Court. He had been part of the six-man majority in the Dred Scott decision of 1857, resigned his position on the U.S. Supreme Court in 1861 to go home and fight for the Confederacy. He didn't fight on the battlefield. He became Assistant Secretary of State in the Confederacy and served through in that position and other high-ranking official positions in the Confederate national government throughout the Civil War. And when the war was over, he was one of those high-ranking Confederate officials denied the right to vote, disfranchised for up to four years. He was part of the final set of amnesty and pardons that Andrew Johnson enacted just before leaving office in the spring of 69. And Campbell had made it his business as a redeemer now in the South to thwart and fight Reconstruction at every turn. He hated black suffrage. He hated black people. He was a virulent white supremacist. He took this case on because he wanted to crush Reconstruction. He even argued, by the way, in the slaughterhouse cases, which Miller turned right back on his head, he even argued that the rights of the butchers were being violated under the 13th Amendment. They said that, he said that these butchers were now being forced into a form of involuntary servitude because they had to take their hogs across the Mississippi and slaughter them downriver. It was violating their right to make a proper livelihood by their own individual choice. And frankly, folks, I read this decision this morning. I, well, I got through most of it. If you want to read the origins of our modern-day uses, and some would say misuses, of civil rights language and legislation in our own time, the ways in which some American politicians, lawyers, judges, etc., pundits, etc., 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 have appropriated the language of the modern civil rights movement, especially the language of the content of our character, to sometimes some scurrilous ends, the roots of that are in John Campbell's arguments in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873. Miller threw the 13th Amendment argument back at, at Thompson and told him, in effect, to, well, stick it somewhere. Now, However, back to Miller's opinion in, in a 5-4 case, the real importance of the Slaughterhouse case is that even though Miller argued that the purpose of these amendments were to, were to advance uh, uh, black freedom and the rights of the freedmen, he nevertheless made a clear distinction between national and state citizenship. In these years, we don't even think, well, I don't think we think in terms today of our State citizen. You think of yourself as a citizen of the state of Virginia. Maybe you do. I don't. Maybe today in Pennsylvania, where people are voting in droves, they're thinking of their citizenship as Pennsylvania. I don't know. But we tend to think of citizenship now, from the, certainly in the early 21st century, as a national phenomenon. One has Portuguese or 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 German or 
American or whatever, Brazilian citizenship and in some countries dual and so on. Rarely do we think of ourselves as citizens of states, but they did in the 19th century. Now, what Miller did in this decision, though, was a bit weird in retrospect. He named various national privileges and immunities. That's the language of the 14th Amendment. Uh, like entering the nation's ports or protection out on the high seas, the ability to run for federal office and to travel to the seat of government and so on. But he never mentioned basic civil rights, access to public facilities, etc., etc., etc. He never mentioned the right to vote. He said all of those rights are only under the jurisdiction of the states, not the national government. In other words, traditional federalism, this separation of what states can control, like the right to vote, like what is a civil right, which civil rights, what kinds of equality are to be adjudicated in court, would be left to the states. Slaughterhouse set in motion now this federal retreat, at least in the courts, and the retreat is already happening elsewhere, from Miller's own definition, ironically, of the meaning of the 13th and 14th Amendments. Back to Colfax, uh, Colfax Louisiana, April 14, 1873. I don't have time for the, all the gruesome details of this massacre, and I'll spare you most of it. But it is in some ways an American Milai massacre. A Cajun forest massacre, what the Soviets did in 1944 in Poland. It's a, it, a, one of these authors of this new book, I think a bit inappropriately, uses the term genocide, that it was a result of a wish for genocide. Um, it is mass murder by any definition. What happened is that with these two competing governments in Louisiana, Democrat fusion government, the Republican government, both would appoint sheriffs in the same parish. So there was the Republican sheriff, who was black, and there was the Democratic sheriff, who was white. Uh, local officials of all kinds are being appointed. Well, what happened is that the violence in the countryside got so bad in Grant Parish that the blacks in the area began leaving their cabins and leaving their small farms, and they came into Colfax because Colfax had become a symbol of protection and safety for blacks in the great Red River district of central Louisiana. By the way, the Red River region of central Louisiana was some of the richest soil in, in all of the South. It was a tremendous sugar and cotton plantation region. Several thousand acres of that Red River district right around Colfax was owned by a white landowner named Willie Calhoun, William Calhoun. He was the son of a Meredith Calhoun, who had been a very, very pro-slavery, huge slaveholder before the Civil War, but his son Willie, who had been raised in part in Europe, because his parents kept living half, half the time in Paris, as a kid was badly, terribly injured, his back was broken, he spent his life as a hunchback, and God only knows how he came by his sympathies and his beliefs in the rights of former slaves, 
But he became a unionist during the Civil War in an area where it was not healthy to be a unionist in the Red River District. And after the war was over, Willie Calhoun became an early and often Scalloway, a Republican. And he, in effect, turned over much of his land without even selling it to the settlement of hundreds and hundreds of freedmen and their families. Willie Calhoun would spend the Colfax Massacre watching probably 150-odd blacks murdered in cold blood as a kind of a prisoner on his front porch. But at any rate, blacks gathered in Colfax for weeks before the spring of 73, because it, it had been at least, uh, or, uh, the Calhoun Landing, as it was called, had been a place of safety. Blacks took over the courthouse in Colfax. They occupied it. They collected lots of weapons. They were ready. They built trenches all the way around the courthouse. They were ready for battle. And it is a battle they got from a huge mob of disparate paramilitary whites, many of whom were, for, were former Confederate soldiers, many of whom were former members of the Ku Klux Klan, some now called themselves Knights of the White Camellia. They went by all kinds of different names. And what had happened on April 14th was indeed, in effect, a pitched battle. The whites had a cannon, lots of weapons. Blacks couldn't hold them off. They fled into the courthouse. The whites captured a black man and forced him to take a torch they said, we'll kill you or you take the torch and light the roof on fire. He, he lit the roof on fire and the courthouse began to burn down, which of course smoked most of the blacks out of the courthouse, although a few stayed and were burned to death, hiding under the floorboards. And as they came out, many of them were executed right around the door. Before the thing was over that night, the estimate runs from about 80 to possibly as high, we'll never really know, as 150 blacks were killed. Most of them execution style, most of them were shots to the head, many of them shots to the back of their heads, and many of them in the wake of being shot uh, having their bodies mutilated. The first representatives of the Louisiana state government the Republican Louisiana state government arrived 48 hours after the massacre and recorded one after another corpse shot in the back of the head and then shot many more times and then somebody's mutilated and they kept this, this is this kind of gruesome need to describe you find in these reports. They also described many of the bodies being eaten by dogs and turkey vultures. Well, Colfax led to a national sensation. Harper's Weekly and Leslie's Weekly had illustrated articles about it within a week. Uh, famous pictures of blacks carrying their dead home to bury them. Quotations from women describing, a woman describing dragging her son away from the dogs who were eating his body and so on and so forth. And it led to a national investigation, a federal investigation, led by the, US, the Republican-appointed U.S. attorney in New Orleans. His name was James Beckwith, a northern-born New England old abolitionist 
fellow with a good deal of zeal who heroically tried to bring indictments and prosecutions. There were indeed many indictments, but only three convictions in the wake of Colfax. It took over two years, and it led to the second great Supreme Court case that turned around Reconstruction. That case, first argued in Louisiana, was for the three men convicted of leading the Colfax Massacre. One of the names was a man named William Cruikshank. C-R-U-I-K-S-H-A-N-K. I don't think I put it on the outline. Or did I? I guess I didn't. Sorry. In the United States versus Cruikshank, the U.S. Supreme Court took up the case of these, prosecu- these convictions in Louisiana. The court by this time, early 1876, when the Cruikshank case came down, had a new chief justice. His name was Morrison Remick Waite, W-A-I-T-E, who had been appointed by Grant in 1874 to replace the recently deceased Salmon P. Chase, who had been appointed chief justice by Abraham Lincoln. The court by 1876 was seven Republicans and two Democrats. Most of them now had been appointed by Lincoln or Grant. This was a thoroughly Republican Party Supreme Court. Um, Wait, by the way, we've been through many Supreme Court appointments in our recent lifetime, and we know how political these things can get. Wait was Grant's fifth choice. The first two people he asked turned him down. (laughs) I don't want to be on the Supreme Court. There's no political future there. Supreme Court justices in these years often ran for president while they were on the court. And it's, they don't do that. At least they don't do that now. The next two people he appointed, or he wanted to appoint, were turned down by the Senate. Wade was his fifth choice. Nobody had ever heard of him. He was known in Ohio, but as one of his own Supreme Court colleagues called him, he uh, said Waite was, quote, at the front rank of second-rank lawyers. And maybe it proves the old adage, apologies to anyone from Ohio. You know the old saying, Ohio's had more presidents, I think, even than Virginia. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. Some just come from Ohio. Morrison Waite will write the opinion in a 9-0 decision, unanimous decision, in the Cruikshank case. This was a test, this case now, of really the Enforcement Act passed in 1870. The Enforcement Act is part of the Ku Klux Klan Act authorizing the federal government to enforce the right to vote with military action if necessary in the South. This was a case now testing that, also, of course, testing the 14th and 15th Amendments. The court decision in Cruikshank found the indictments it said faulty. It overturned two of the three convictions. It ruled that those immortal phrases of due process and equal protection, those two great clauses in the fourth and Part 1 of the 14th Amendment applied, they said, only to state actions and not to the actions of individuals. 
If a man murders another man in Colfax, Louisiana, in a, in, a, in a political way or any other way, that's a state matter. Even if it's around voting, it's a state matter, not a federal matter. Can't be adjudicated in the federal court. Federal government does not have the power to enforce the right to vote, the right to civil rights, and so on. The Cruikshank case, the implications of the Cruikshank case immediately were obvious. It meant, number one, that mass murder went unpunished in the United States. Two, it meant that blacks increasingly now would be at the mercy of now hostile state governments. Back when Justice Miller wrote that decision in Slaughterhouse, there was still a lot of Republican regime. And his, he, he claimed to his dying day he was leaving adjudication to states under sympathetic Republican governments. Yeah, but Justice Miller, what if uh, government's no longer sympathetic? What if it's run by Klansmen? And three, it opened up, Cruikshank now opens up as a federal court decision, all manner of discriminatory laws passed by what will be Democratic Redeemer governments in the southern states. Why was there a 9-0 decision in 1876 on this with seven of the justices appointed by Lincoln and Grant and so on? Well, one, you have to realize that by 75 and 76, when these guys were adjudicating this decision, there was a tremendous amount of just flat-out fatigue with Reconstruction. And I've been, to all, I've been to a lot of your sections now, and I've heard you say the same thing. And I'm not chastising you. I'm not. But sometimes we, we, we read back into the past even our own fatigue with certain issues. They were sort of fed up with Reconstruction in the North. Well, yeah, they were. But look at the consequences. It's clear, even in their own writings, that many of the justices just wanted to get rid of Reconstruction and leave it to the South. It's signaled now, most importantly, and Foner makes this point in the one little paragraph he gives you on the Cruikshank case, it's signaled now that the federal government was, in effect, exiting Reconstruction. Certainly the Supreme Court was. And as Foner says, terror was given a green light anywhere that a state government was unwilling to enforce the law or protect people. Now, why was radicalism waning in the 1870s or even at the beginning of the 1870s? What is it about the Grant years, especially the second Grant administration, that leads, you know, that just pa practically paves these roads to a southern redemption, a southern counter-revolution? Well, there are many factors, and let me kind of run through them and then focus especially on the scandals for a moment, and then on this larger question of, of violence, in case you haven't heard enough about violence. I mean, first of all, there's the Panic of 1873, um, which set in in the spring of 1873, a major economic depression that hit the country, eventually the entire country. It led to a great deal of labor strife and violence. It meant in the wake of the, well, in the midst of the Panic of 73 into 74, 75, that the issues now that politicians were most concerned about and that voters were most concerned about, particularly in the North, were things like currency, tariffs, 
Unemployment, railroad subsidies, labor strife, whether a union had the right to strike here or the right to strike there. And across the great Midwest, among farmers, the biggest issue was the price of wheat, which dropped from $2 a barrel to 50 cents in a year and a half. Wages for manufacturing laborers in the United States in a year and a half dropped by 50% across the country. That's for those who kept their jobs. The Panic of 1873 shifted people's minds, to say the least. Then there's the factor of the, grant, the nature of Grant's presidency. The way in which Grant himself even defined the presidency. Grant, you'll remember, was a rather reluctant politician at first. He actually got a little better at it than his historical reputation has sometimes led us to believe. Grant could be very political. Although he did have this idea that the presidency ought to be, especially in these crisis years, with the tremendous bitterness and bloody shirt tensions after the Civil War, and after all, he's the general that won the war and obliterated Virginia, that the president ought to be now just basically a caretaker, ought to have as few opinions as possible. A caretaker presidency. Not so much a leader as a uh, unifier. Now, his hands-off approach to so many things, of course, is what in part led to the scandals that are so long, have long, so long been associated with him, or at least with his administration. I would argue that Grant has gotten to some extent a bad rap from some historians, although if you look at any of those lists that come out every year when they survey historians, the greatest presidents, the worst presidents, you know, Lincoln's always at the top, then you get FDR. Now Reagan is always in the top three for reasons I don't even want to go discuss. Uh, is, well, a lot of airports are named for him, so I guess that's why. At any rate, um, enough on that. Grant is always down there, near the bottom. I can't resist this. The great American cynic of the 19th century, one of our greatest historians, one of our most beautiful writers, but what a cynic. Henry Adams, son of Charles Francis Adams, grandson of Quincy, great-grandson of John. This was his description of Grant. And he was living the Grant administration. Grant had no right to exist. He should have been extinct for ages. That 2,000 years after Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, a man like Grant should be called and should actually and truly be the highest product of the most advanced evolution made evolution ludicrous. The progress of evolution from President Washington to President Grant was alone evidence enough to upset Darwin, Grant, should have lived in a cave and worn skins. Ooh, that's cold and unfair. But under his leadership, a whole series of four or five different scandals that sort of set the uh, standard <laughs> for scandal to come in American history, although we've, we've had some much worse ones since than some of these. Most of them were, of course, financial. 
There's almost no sex in the Grant scandal years, so far as we can tell. Um, the first was the gold scandal. This was an attempt to corner the gold market by one Jay Gould and James Fisk. These were Wall Street guys in New York. This was in 1869, right after Grant took office. They did indeed corner the market on gold. They tried to buy up all the gold in New York, and then they planned to force bankers and business people to buy the gold from them at inflated prices. It's an old cornering uh, trick. They, uh, they made $11 million in three weeks doing this in the 19th century. They were eventually selling that gold at $163.50 per ounce. And the only way to break their corner was suddenly, because it happened so fast, was for the federal government to begin selling all of its gold, put it on the market, get the prices down. Grant's brother-in-law, never appoint your brother-in-law to anything, Abel Corbin, was a sort of personal emissary he assured and promised the plotters, Gould and Fisk, that uh, he had influence on Grant and that Grant would never permit the government's gold to be sold. But he was wrong. And Grant did allow it to be sold. And then Grant's, uh, Grant's uh, Treasury Secretary, George Bartwell, got involved. The scandal finally broke open in the press. And though nothing ever really happened to Gould or Fisk, setting in motion a history of who gets caught and who doesn't get caught in the Wall Street world, it, did, it was the first scandal of its kind that began to lead to cries of civil service reform, which became a, 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 a big rallying cry in the 1870s. Then there was the whiskey ring. Man, this was old-fashioned, just unadulterated fraud. This began in the early 1870s. It first started in St. Louis. It was really a cartel, what we in modern times would call the creation of a cartel. These were whiskey distillers all over the country who banded together to cheat the U.S. government out of excise taxes, you know, the luxury tax on whiskey. The way that they did it is many distillers were forced to join this ring of people around the country or have their businesses ruined. Join, or we'll run you out of business. The Whiskey Ring had branch offices all over the country in cities like Milwaukee, Peoria, New Orleans, Chicago, Cincinnati, in Washington, and many other cities, north, south, west, you name it. And then they started bribing the Treasury Department, which, of course, is where the excise taxes would, would go to. Many officials in the Treasury Department were soon on the payroll of the Whiskey Ring, especially the chief clerk of the U.S. Treasury Department the man who kept the books. One General Orville Babcock, the president's private secretary, was implicated, more than implicated. He was involved. Uh, he was charged eventually, although acquitted. Grant entered a deposition on his behalf, his good character and so on in court, which he never should have done. He didn't really look at the facts. He didn't look at the evidence. The point of all this one is that millions and millions of dollars in liquor revenues were lost to the U.S. government from about 1870 to 1875, and most of that money went into the pockets of whiskey distillers 
and a lot of it went into the pockets of Treasury Department officials who were themselves supposed to be collecting the tax. The estimate is that between 40 and 50 million dollars was grafted in this particular scandal. Scandal broke in 1875. There were about 150 people indicted in the liquor business, about 85 people indicted in the federal government. There were 110 convictions, although nobody served terribly long in any prison. And thirdly, there's this thing called Credit Mobile. This was the company that was first chartered in 1859 as part of, it was, it was the finance company for the Pennsylvania, it was called the Pennsylvania Fiscal Agency originally. It was the finance company for the Union Pacific Railroad that got the greatest contract in American history to build the Transcontinental Railroad. The Union Pacific had a charter from the federal government to build this great railroad to the Pacific, or possibly two or three of them. For each mile of track built, the Union Pacific was to receive 10 sections of public land, and from 16000 to $48,000, depending on how difficult the terrain was to build on. The Union Pacific arranged the construction contracts with its own firm that it called Credit Mobile, so that all government money would get spent. You know the old routine. If you get a grant, make sure you spend it because they won't give you as much next time. Credit Mobile and therefore Union Pacific made enormous profits. The shares of stock in Credit Mobile skyrocketed and to keep the federal government in line and to let this continue to go on, many congressmen, we never know, we'll never know exactly how many, were on the take, were simply being bribed in old-fashioned handfuls of cash by the Union Pacific. This scandal, too, broke in 1873. All kinds of people were accused, including Vice President Shuler Colfax. Congress reprimanded one government railroad agent and two congressmen, and then just left it alone. Uh, so far as I know, no one's ever really put a price tag on the graft committed by the Union Pacific in the Credit Mobile case. This kind of spoilsman economic, uh, financial corruption became rampant in the Grant years. And again, a huge political distraction away from the issues of the South, the issues of the freedmen, the issues of Reconstruction. The other major path to Southern redemption, the success of the white Southern Democratic Party, was, of course, the uses of violence. But before I give you a little more litany on the level of Klan terrorism, think with me for just a moment what those radical Republicans originally, almost none of whom are really in power anymore. Thaddeus Stevens died in 1869. Charles Sumner dies in 1874. Benjamin Wade is long gone as a senator from Ohio. The, the old leadership of the radicals is really no longer there by 1874 when the Democrats are going to throw the Republicans out of the leadership of the Congress anyway. But think with me for just a moment back to what Foner called the, the radicals' civic vision. 
That civic vision again was rooted in free soilism, unionism, winning the war, and to some and anti and, and ending slavery, emancipation, and then to at least the beginnings of racial equality. You cannot mistake that they believed in at least the beginnings of that in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But think for a moment. In the 19th century, how would most Americans think about the idea of equality? I would argue that in our history, this nation in the modern world that probably tried to do more about the idea of equality than perhaps any place else, has gone through three definitions of equality. The first we might simply call equality in the eyes of God, or natural rights. The old Enlightenment, it's not from the, just from the Enlightenment, it's in the epistles of Paul, it's, it's, it's ancient in some ways, but the idea that somehow you're born equal before God or nature, you have a natural capacity that's equal. It doesn't say anything about human affairs. <coughs> it doesn't say anything about government or law. <coughs> the second kind of equality that came into history is equality before law. That was never codified, never spoken until the 14th Amendment. The equal protection of the law. That's where it begins. If there's a third kind of equality in our history, it's probably what we came to call in the 20th century, and especially in the Civil Rights Revolution and its wake, an equality of opportunity. In the 19th century, trusts, they never got to that one. And they didn't get terribly far with equality before law. The radical Republicans' ideas were up against... And here you can just give up and say, well, you see what, they tried to go too far too fast. They were ahead of their times. Gee whiz, Reconstruction failed. Maybe it should have failed. Can't do anything about it. So be it. Well, the lights went out for 75 or 80 years, but that's, you know, some things are inevitable in history. If you're comfortable with that, uh, fine. But the radical Republican ideology at least set in motion a tradition. The problem was they got cornered themselves in their, by their own language because the language they got cornered by was the language of guaranteed rights. If you've guaranteed somebody's uh, beginnings of equality in law, what else is there to do? If you and I are equal before the law, at least the law says we're equal before the law, what else can government do? But the radical Republicans in Reconstruction launched that question into our history as no one ever had. What do governments owe people? And what do people owe governments? The trouble, of course, was that on the ground in the South, the Klan and all of its imitators were winning Reconstruction by terror, by political violence, um, by intimidation. Now, you've read about the Klan. I've given you statistics on Klan violence, especially in 1868 up through 1871. But it was the first Grant administration, and we've got to give Grant credit for this, and Henry Adams should have at least thought of this when he wrote that god-awful passage. 
The Grant administration did act in 1870 and 71 against the claim. May 31, 1870, it passed the so-called Force Act, or the First Enforcement Act. It made it a federal offense to interfere with any person's right to vote and made it punishable in a federal court. That's the very law. The Cruikshank case is going to come along six years later and say, no, federal government can't enforce that. Only the state can. It's one of those moments you want to go back into history and just grab some people by the collar and say, no, 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 no. Think, of a, think one more time. But, of course, we can't do that. February 28, 1871, a second force act provided a machinery for the federal supervision of registration and voting in the South. They had at least tried. And finally, they passed what was called the Ku Klux Klan Act. April 20, 1871, it authorized the president to use the army and to suspend the writ of habeas corpus wherever he deemed necessary if there was a state of insurrection, which there was in South Carolina, in about 12 counties, move the army in if necessary to protect the safety and security of elections. Now, under this authority of these enforcement acts and the Klan Act, Approximately uh, 3,000 people, mostly white Southerners, were indicted for Klan violence, murder, intimidation, torture. Thousands were arrested. Many of those 3,000 indicted pleaded guilty and got suspended sentences. About 600 were convicted, 250 acquitted. Most received fines or light jail sentences. 65 people were imprisoned for up to five years in a federal penitentiary in Albany, New York. All of them were out by 1875 before the Cruikshank case. The thousands of people murdered by the Klan, the thousands tortured, the thousands kept from voting, 65 people were prosecuted. If you think back to the other day, a quotation I ask you to keep in your head. When Frederick Douglass gives that speech in 1875, imagining the following year, the, bis the centennial of the U.S. independence, and he worries about all the hosannas to American patriotism and to independence, and he says, if war among the whites brought freedom to blacks, what will peace among the whites bring? It is a peace among the whites that was happening by 1875. On Thursday, we'll uh, move this toward one of the ends of Reconstruction. Welcome back. That was uh, Professor David Blight at uh, Yale University speaking on uh, the overthrow of U.S. Reconstruction, uh, which was commenced in the late 1860s after the Civil War and on a federal level uh, was under attack, of course, by the mid-1870s. By 1877, federal reconstruction had been abolished, although African-Americans continued to occupy offices in some southern states up until uh, the 18, early 1890s. 
This is Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 27th, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We will take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment. Now get on on it, boy. Welcome back. The music of uh, Leroy Carr uh, with that uh, fantastic uh, guitar player. Leroy Carr on vocals and piano. I believe I can make a change. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We're going to go into our concluding segment uh, from, of course, the urban uh, rebellions uh, that were preceded by slave revolts and the Civil War and Reconstruction. Let's listen to the CBS News report from March of 1968. Good evening. I'm Harry Reasoner. Not quite two months ago, as we reported, 
The President's Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder warned that race hatred threatened to tear this country apart. Events this month have made the warning more imperative than before. In more than 100 cities, violence broke out. Forty persons died. The soft spring has not yet given way to the hard summer, but the events have reinforced the words of the riot commission. Chairman Otto Kerner reads from the report. This is our basic conclusion. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Reaction to last summer's disorders has quickened the movement and deepened the division. Discrimination and segregation have long permeated much of American life. They now threaten the future of every American. To pursue our present course will involve the continuing polarization of the American community and ultimately the destruction of basic democratic values. The alternative will require a commitment to national action, compassionate, massive, and sustained, backed by the resources of the most powerful and richest nation on the earth. From every American, it will require new attitudes, new understanding, and above all, new will. This is a CBS News special. What happened to the riot report? Over four million women look shapelier this year. You can, too. How? Just cross your heart. See? You're suddenly shapelier. That's what this new Playtex cotton bra will do. It will cross your heart with stretch to lift and separate. You're suddenly shapelier. Over four million women wear this new cotton bra by Playtex. Cross your heart. You'll be suddenly shapelier, too. Announcing a comfortable way to look five pounds thinner. The new five pounds thinner girdle by Playtex. Prove it yourself. Fingertip sew. Press in. See? The new Playtex girdle has fingertip panels to hold you in firmly. Yet it's so different. Feels like nothing you've ever felt before. Look five pounds thinner without losing a pound. New five pounds thinner girdle by Playtex. Now on sale. Save $2. This broadcast is an interim look at what happened to the riot report. A final verdict on its effect will take a long time, if we are given the time. The Riot Commission outlined an action program to transform life in our urban ghettos. Six million new homes in five years, two million new jobs, a guarantee of minimum income, far greater aid to schools than proposed thus far. A national commitment backed by the President, the Congress, the people, with money. Since the riot report was issued, a civil rights bill has been passed into law which will make illegal discrimination in sales and rentals of 80% of the nation's housing. A landmark law by past standards. But by present standards, after the murder of Martin Luther King, after new riots, it has seemed to the people in the ghettos too modest an effort, coming too slow. Still, even in the most troubled of cities, with the most complicated of problems, last summer's riots and this year's riots report have caused some change, some change, while most remains the same. A report now from Newark, where last year 23 were killed, a city which broke into flames again this month. Mike Pappas reports. The way you look at the Commission's report on civil disorders depends on where you sit. If you sit here in the central ward of Newark in the Negro ghetto, 
You feel that the report told you nothing new about the way you live and about the way you're treated. To you, it's just a mass of words. But if you sit at City Hall, you're glad that the commission itemized all of the illnesses of the ghetto and isolated many of the causes of the diseases. And now you hope that somehow someone will come up with the money to pay for the cure. And these are the scars the illness leaves. This is part of Springfield Avenue, Newark. On the night of July 13th, 1967, hundreds of rioters smashed windows and looted these stores. Losses in the city were put at $10,251,000 by the riot commission. The rioting cost the lives of 23 persons, according to the commission. Hundreds of others were injured. Then, early this month, new disturbances coincided with the funeral of Martin Luther King. There was widespread arson. Nearly 600 people were made homeless. There was some looting, but at least this time, no one was killed. Then again, this past weekend, a massive fire broke out in the Negro Central Ward. The cost, 500 more homeless. Again, arson was given as the official reason. And now, there are new scars over the old. And though there was much praise of how the police reacted in the new ghetto emergencies, the disturbances showed again that Newark's inner core was sick, and the causes of the disease proved familiar. Poor housing, poor schools, and few jobs. The Riot Commission notes, although Newark's population of 400,000 ranks 30th in size among American cities, for the past 20 years, the white middle class has been moving away from the inner core, leaving it to decay. 70,000 whites left. The population shifted from 72% white to 62% Negro and Latin, most of whom rented their slum homes and paid little tax revenue to the city. To continue the tragic cycle of the ghetto, there were few jobs for the uneducated, the unskilled. Responding to the report's findings or to the malaise of the city, some 300 business firms joined with Newark City officials to seek an answer to the question, what does a company have to do to organize, hire, and train the jobless ghetto dwellers? The meeting took place a month after the report was issued, one week before the first April disturbance. Some businesses, like Western Electric, had already found their own answers with programs for the hardcore unemployed. For men like Charlie Dalleb, 30-year-old father of two, a participant in last summer's riots. Charlie Dalleb, a man who never before has held a steady job, is learning now to wire telephones. But he does not credit the President's Commission with getting him his job. The riot commission report hasn't changed anything. It's the riot that did the changing. You know, that's what changed, not the report. Uh, see, you know, because the people, man, like I say, you just can't, you can't live on promises. You know, if I go to you and say, well, look, man, uh, I'm hungry, man, you know, I need this, I need that. And you tell me, say, okay, uh, I can dig your situation, I, I, I sympathize with you, but, you know, just let it be cool, you know. And uh, this, this goes on for a while, but, man, <laughs> you know, this ain't where it's at. I got to, pretty soon, I got to take some action to let you know that I'm not driving, you know, that I'm hungry. Newark, in its way, is trying to implement the recommendations of the Riot Commission report. 
In housing, the report recommends that 6 million low- and moderate-income housing units be built in the United States over the next five years. Newark City Administration points to the fact that 3,500 new apartments have either been completed or have been put under construction since last summer's riots. Newark's total urban renewal program is the fifth largest in the nation. In the field of education, Newark says that since its public schools are 80 to 85 percent Negro and Latin anyway, de facto segregation is not an issue. But the city admits that its schools are in trouble and has appealed to the state to take over the school system. In an attempt to follow the report's recommendation on police in the community, Newark has allocated funds to storefront police offices. Captain Edward Williams has been assigned to head up the tough 4th Precinct, and Newark police were noticeably restrained during the April outbreaks. There was little firing of weapons and no deaths attributed to police action. I'm, I'm, I'm the new police captain up in the 4th Precinct. Uh, you know, I'm trying to do a job here for the people. I need young people to help me out. But Newark has failed to provide more police in the ghetto. And the reason? The city says it can't find men willing to take the work for the pay involved. The success or failure of the report always comes back to money. Mayor Hugh Adonisio. All I can tell you is that we have severe problems in the city of Newark. In my judgment, many of them have to be met with a financial commitment I haven't seen that financial commitment forthcoming from the federal government or state government, and I have to tell you very frankly and honestly that the city is in no position to undertake it by itself. We are willing to do our part. We have the highest tax rate in the, uh, of any city our size in the country, and I just don't know where we can find any additional funds to try to meet these very severe problems. I have practically sent this city bankrupt. But the city tries. Mayor Adonisio, who along with his police chief, Dominic Spina, were scathingly criticized by black militants after the summer riots, were lauded by white and black militants alike for their work in cooling the anguish of the ghetto after Reverend King's murder. The city has supported what the riot report calls most important, a dialogue. Militants such as Leroy Jones, concerned members of both communities, religious leaders, and representatives of the white power structure attend. Complaints that could become incendiary are aired. This is a meeting sponsored by Newark's anti-poverty agency, the United Community Corporation. There is a sign that attitudes might be changing, that efforts to find jobs to understand can make a man like Charlie Dalib think twice before joining a riot. Mr. Dalib, what did you do this time? I didn't do anything this time. I didn't do anything at all. Why not? Well... What was the difference? Well, this time I had a job. You know, last time I didn't. Means of support. For Charlie Dalib, it meant the difference between rioting and not rioting. But there's many another angry man in Newark's ghetto who has not yet broken away from the cycle of poverty and humiliation. He remains an embittered and frustrated individual, but no more frustrated and certainly no more anxious than the mayor himself. There hasn't been any real change made uh, since the riots in my community. I haven't seen any money pouring in here trying to meet these problems. Uh, we're in no position to undertake programs, uh, financial programs, that is. Uh, you need money to build housing. Uh, you need money to, to hire people and put them to work. 
And unless you get that kind of money, it just can't be done. Uh, I just don't think that Congress uh, recognizes uh, uh, or it has not been brought home to them severely enough as to what the real problem is. Well, that was the reason for the Riot Commission report. Well, evidently it hasn't made any impact. The lack of impact hurts in Newark. It hurts in big city ghettos across the nation. But it also frustrates the men who were called by the president to write the report. The chairman and the vice chairman of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders both have complained about the failure of federal government to implement what they signed. As the vice chairman of that commission, which spent seven long months analyzing last summer's riots and drawing up solid proposals to stop them at the source, I'm severely disappointed by the failure of the federal government to implement the commission's bipartisan recommendations. We are not moving fast enough or far enough. We are not convincing the people in the slums that our government truly wants to help them. We have not adopted an affirmative national policy of interest and concern. In my judgment, the primary responsibility for absence of action rests with the Congress of the United States. Mayor Lindsay uh, laid the blame on the Congress of the United States for any inaction. I think that's right. I'd agree with him. No money? Is that what the problem is? They, well, no not, action. After no action. Money for the... Well, there's been no action. There's really been no discussion about it uh, in, the, in the committees in the Senate. It's just wide fallow. No movement at all. Pro or con. As Congress reconvened yesterday after its traditional long Easter recess, there was still no sign of movement by the federal government on the problems of the cities. The president has so far received the findings of his commission with restrained enthusiasm. It was, he said, prepared by good and serious men. It was, he said, thorough. It contained many good recommendations, he said, like those his administration had earlier proposed. Congress, worried about balancing a budget and now apprehensive about rewarding riot, has shown still fewer signs of providing what the commission asked, a commitment to national action. But have the April riots and the Easter pause to reflect caused any new prospects of action by the White House and Congress. Dan Rather and Roger Mudd report. It no longer seems possible to report on the mood of the Congress, for in the last six months, the Senate has drawn so far apart from the House on Civil Rights that there are two distinct moods. The House, it seems, remains the alley scrapper, its dukes up in the air, convinced it is defending the neighborhood, daring the Negro marchers to cross the line. But the Senate appears genuinely to be changing. Just last week, the Senate's Southern Conservative establishment was unceremoniously dumped on three separate votes involving summer jobs, Head Start, and school lunch programs, and the quantities of money being sucked out of the city and into the military. And just this afternoon, the Senate's old windsock of change, Everett Dirksen, told reporters that neither a disruptive march on Washington nor a summer of violence would alter his view that what is needed is an expanded job training program, tax credits to industry for providing the jobs, and a rebuilding of the ghettos engineered by someone like William Levitt of Levittown. This is not to say that the Senate or the House under pressure will now spring into action on the riot report. Everyone on the Hill is acutely aware of the financial box the administration is in. But when politicians from Dirksen on down start declaring that the fear of backlash is nothing compared to the fear of a paralyzed nation. 
we do say that a change is visible and sizable. The president would like to increase the velocity of those congressional winds of change. He claims he is doing all possible behind the scenes to make them blow harder. But he views it as a slow process and one that cannot be helped by any fire and brimstone speeches nor dramatic public gestures on his part. We could engage in rhetoric, hyperbole, and demagoguery over this Turner report, but we aren't, says one high-ranking White House aide, who adds, and I quote, we don't want expectations to exceed possibilities. This president practices the art of the possible, and implementing all of the Turner report immediately simply is not possible. Because we don't have the money, yes, but more importantly, because neither the Congress nor the people yet have the will. That is a step-by-step -step educational process. This high-ranking presidential aide goes on to say, pass first the model cities, rent supplement and housing bills already in the hopper. Then we can move on to additional needed programs. End of quotation. In short, the president has handled the riot commission report like the political nitroglycerin it is, cautiously, warily. He is not about to start taking chances with it now. Dan Rather, CBS News, the White House. Wash this widely used spray cleaner on greasy dirt. Works pretty good, but see how fast it runs? That can cause streaking and extra work. That's why Ajax came up with a brand new idea for a spray cleaner, specially made to help protect against streaking. Ajax concentrates its power where the dirt is. Wipe, and it comes clean. So get Ajax spray cleaner, specially formulated to help protect against streaking. For cellar to attic house cleaning, here's what we use. Handy wipes, tough, all-purpose claws, soft as chamois. They wipe dust, polish, work a thousand ways. Marvelous for cleaning sooty dirt. Handy wipes rinse out cleaner. Won't smear that dirt around. Our windows prove that. Great for polishing, and they last and last. Less than a nickel each and machine washable. Nicest thing that's ever happened to house cleaning. Handy wipes. The main emphasis of the President's Commission was on cure for the causes of riot. But the commissioners also dealt with ways of containing riots once they break out. Federal action on prevention has been minimal so far, as we have noted. But the government has had to act to minimize the effect of the new rash of riots. More U.S. Army troops and National Guardsmen, 68,000, were called up this month to deal with domestic disorder than at any time since the Civil War. Some Guardsmen and some police departments sought again to repress the rioters with brutality. But many more this time did seek to follow the policy of restraint which the riot report urged and which the Justice Department had been teaching police officials all winter long. Attorney General Ramsey Clark assessed the results. Riots or wild violence that could have easily led to a major riot occurred in more than a hundred cities. But the police have acted with balance generally. And because of that, there were fewer deaths, fewer deaths and less property damage than in one riot last year. And we can bless our police for that. In Washington, 9,000 troops were called in to control 48 hours of looting and arson. But fewer than 15 rounds were fired by those troops. Seven Negroes died but only one was shot by a law enforcement officer. In Chicago, the police and National Guard also used the Justice Department guidelines of restraint, at least in theory. It was still a bloody, costly three days for Chicago. 
11 persons, all Negro, died. Two of those were killed by police who caught them looting. But for Chicago's angry Mayor Richard Daley, this was still too much restraint. I was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision. And this decision evidently was his. In my opinion, he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot looters. Shoot arsonists to kill and shoot looters in order that they be detained. And in my opinion also, there should have been mace used on these looters when this was being conducted. New York Mayor John Lindsay expressed strong disagreement with Daly. In times of trouble, we're going to respect human life fully as much as our obligation to maintain public order. Uh, we are not going to turn disorder into chaos uh, through the unprincipled use of armed force. In short, we are not going to shoot children in New York City. No children, no adults were shot in New York streets. Several thousand looters sacked Harlem streets for nearly seven hours, the worst outbreak of looting in that area's history. But in what may be the most militant ghetto in the nation, there were no snipers. No soldiers were needed in New York. It seemed to me that it, at a high policy level, a decision was made to trade appliances for human lives. And to me, this worked. I think that the behavior of the police, the discipline, and it, interestingly enough, I thought I sensed more than discipline. I thought I sensed in the police behavior in Harlem humanity. What Dr. Clark calls a decision to trade appliances for human lives has caused more controversy than any other aspect of the April riots. Anguished moderates have asked whether looters rewarded, or at least unpunished, may not ultimately bring American society to chaos. A new white backlash is plainly visible in the country. The lead story in today's Wall Street Journal is headed, Ghetto Violence Brings Hardening of Attitudes Toward Negro Gains. Still, backlash has not dissipated the impact of the riot report among hundreds of thousands of people in America's urban communities. The report turned out to be a runaway bestseller. 740,000 copies were sold the first three weeks. More than a million are now in print. Phantom Books, which published the first edition, calls it the fastest-selling paperback since Valley of the Dolls, which it does not precisely resemble in style. For what one blue-collar community in Brooklyn has done, here is David Cohen. This is Bushwick, a neighborhood in Brooklyn that's half black and half white. There is racial tension here, and this could become the scene of a summer riot. But they've been lucky so far in having no trouble. One reason for this good fortune is that a minority here is working for racial harmony. One of the things that they've been doing is selling copies of the president's report on civil disorders. At PS 151, where the pupils are mostly Negro or Puerto Rican, the school's book fair was enlarged to include a table full of the paper-bound reports. Sixth graders were not the best customers. But throughout the neighborhood, in various ways, more than 2,000 copies of the riot report were sold in less than a week. And 8,000 more copies were quickly ordered. A 
A few blocks away, drums and bugles join the sales pitch at 14 Holy Martyrs Roman Catholic Church. Several young priests in Bushwick are active behind the scenes, urging sales of the report as a first step by whites toward recognizing what the priests and the report see as the fundamental problem, white racism. One of these priests is Father Roger Martin. What's your target there? I, I think that there's probably a general assumption that the church-going people are most likely to understand a problem like this. Is that true or not? I wish it were. Um, the problem, the charge of racism, is a charge which infects the culture of our country. And um, the sickness of racism is uh, religion doesn't give you an immunity to it. Yesterday, a group of Father Martin's colleagues sent a petition to the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, meeting in St. Louis, asking that the church buy a million copies of the report for distribution. And this weekend, 2,000 citizens of Ithaca, New York, population 28,000, signed a petition supporting higher federal income taxes to implement the provisions of the riot report. And most important, in the absence of government action, are the widespread efforts by the business community throughout the U.S., to invest in jobs and hope in the ghettos beyond anything ever tried before in American history. This is about the headache tablets you and your family take. Watch. Two leading extra strength tablets. While this one contains several useful pain relievers, just two anison give you more of the specific pain reliever doctors recommend most than four of the other extra strength tablets. Surprised? Okay, I'll do it again. Two anison give you more of the pain reliever doctors recommend most than four of the other extra strength tablets. Of course, four of these would be more than you should take, but it would take at least four of the other extra strength tablets to give you as much of this pain reliever as in two anison. Now that you know this, I hope the next time you need a headache tablet, you reach for help, reach for anison, and relax. The transformation of a society, which is what the riot report is really all about, requires the full commitment of a nation's leaders. But in our system, political leaders seldom commit themselves to radical action without the urging or at least the support of those who are led. That commitment has not been made so far. Without the active participation of the entire community, our society is likely to remain, as the report found it, divided and racist. Roger Martin, a parish priest, and Kenneth Clark, a social scientist, are convinced of this. Yeah, I have now come to the conclusion that what American society has caught up in is a rather pervasive affliction, you know, a pervasive disease in which the actions of the White House, whoever is there, and congressmen are merely reflecting the level of maturity or immaturity of the larger society. If you would ask me where I would look now to try to find the basic solutions to America's problems, I would look in white communities. 
white community hears the charge of racism and does nothing, refuses to acknowledge the charge, then what happens in the future, I'm afraid of. Kenneth Clark was one of the first witnesses before the riot commission. Commissioners described him as the best. In his testimony, he spoke of other earlier reports that produced the same analysis, the same recommendations, the same inaction. Such reports to Dr. Clark and to men of the ghetto like Newark's Charlie Dallab are part of the white establishment's game. But Charlie Dallab noted that if reports are not acted upon, he's got to show you that he's hungry. This is Harry Reasoner. Good night. This has been a CBS News special. What happened to the riot report? Welcome back. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 27th, uh, 2023. And if you'd like to have access to this program, go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of Wayne Shorter uh, here uh, one year after his transition uh, last year in 2022. This is taken from an album entitled Speak No Evil. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. <laughs>